Hello and welcome to the third birthday edition of Hell is for Hyphenates. For May 2013, I am writer, hyphen critic, hyphen old sport, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Hello everybody, uh, party favours going off at the ready. I am a writer, hyphen director, hyphen fake John Harrison, Paul Anthony Nelson. And with us today is our very special guest. Oh, he's not here yet. What? He's, he's actually not here. He's, he's coming. He's coming. He, he might join us for the second segment. It, it could be a grand entrance. But sure. But for now, it's just going to be us doing the reviews. It'll be like, it's oh. a callback to the first episode we ever did, where it was just us. Yes. Do you remember that? It'll start off like that. I and thought we needed some alone time again. It's been a long time. It's true. Yeah. Yeah, I know. All these guests, they just get in the way. Yeah. So, so do you think we'll just, we'll just very quietly just spring him on everybody in the second segment, do you think? Why not? Yeah? Why not? Oh, let's do that. Yeah. So the films of May for 2013 included the long-awaited, long-delayed Great Gatsby, which my taxpayer money, your taxpayer money went to fund. Mm. I think it got so much taxpayer money that uh, everyone in Australia contributed a little bit. I didn't get Final Cut. I'm a little annoyed about yeah. that. Uh, we're all filmmakers. Isn't that what every Film Victoria ad tries to tell us? This is true. Mm. Yeah. Well, we're all investors anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Was our money spent rightly, Lee? Wisely? <laughs> we're sure as hell spent. We can, <laughs> we can see that. I don't think there's any denying that. I think that's something we can all agree on. It's weird that I've sort of been on Baz's side recently because we do that tall poppy thing where everyone's been trying to sort of cut him down, I think, in the lead up to it. And I know a lot of that does come from a genuine place. People are very protective of F. Scott Fitzgerald's book, and I understand that. It's an amazing book. But uh, I have sort of felt like he's the underdog a bit, and despite the fact that his last film, Australia, made my worst of 2008 list. And not just the list, it was number one. I still... <laughs> it was the list. It was, yeah, it was the entire list, and I still wanted Gatsby to do well, and I was almost, almost going to like it out of sheer belligerence, and I really <laughs> wanted to, and I thought the tra- trailers looked amazing, and I thought, there's one thing that Baz does well, it's artifice, and the book is about artifice. Mm. And I thought that's a really great match. But where the book uses artifice to illustrate a deeper story, Baz uses artifice to show us more artifice. Yeah. It's just artifice all the way down. There are a couple of scenes that I think are really nicely done, and it's kind of they're the scenes without, you know, where you're not having CGI thrown at you the whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just characters interacting, and that's when the film works. The rest of the time, it's just sound and fury signifying... CGI, you know. I have to agree. I I feel like if I wouldn't have minded a lot of the visual flourishes if they if Baz and his team had gotten the point of the book. As you say, the artifice is there to make a point of how empty and hollow and self-centered all of this jazz age stuff is. America reveling in its wealth and and just before the depression hits and all of that, which of course not a foresight he had at the time, but mm. you know, it, it's kind of apt. And look, I think he does get some things right, but I think the major hurdle this film falls face first over is it just does not get Nick Carraway, mm. the lead character, the narrator. In the film, he's so... I mean, in the book, he's so wry and yeah. funny. And it's, a tra- it's his tragedy because he knows this world is fake. He knows everybody's full of shit, mm. and yet he still falls for it, and he still gets seduced by it. And at the end, his disgust, his sickness at New York is, is a sickness at himself because he's... He, you know, and what it's done to Gatsby, and you know, and it's, and instead they make him the the archetypal Tobey Maguire character. They make him the wide-eyed, gormless kind of innocent who mm. gets jaded by the end, and 
And it's just, it just misses the, it's, it's just the cancer that begins infecting the rest of it and just misses the point. But of, I, of I saw so many critics saying that leading up to it, like Baz doesn't get the book. And I kept thinking, no, he just has a different interpretation. It's a book that can lend itself well to what I was watching in the trailers. Mm. And, you know, I got to, I, I, I got to backtrack because I kind of feel like he doesn't get the book. And when the words jump out at the screen, it's like somebody trying to assure you that they understand the text by shouting it at you. Yeah. I feel like I didn't feel like this with this particular film I'm going to mention, but I feel like the cr- the critics of Watchmen are going to find a lot of the same sort of issues here. I, th- I feel like Watchmen and Great Gatsby are going to be lumped together a bit in terms of these huge, very slavish CGI-heavy adaptations that don't get the source material. I'm, and I didn't feel that about Watchmen personally, sure, I but, I, but I feel like the people... I see your point. That, a lot of that criticism was thrown at Watchmen, and yeah. I feel like that's well, how people felt with that i feel with this i kind of feel like that it's it they've it's a slavish adaptation everything in the book is in the movie mm. it's pretty um dead on but none of the point has been preserved um having said that it's I like love- nathan lane walking like john wayne and you're like yeah that is kind of how he walks but <laughs> That's not right. (laughs) There's something missing. But look, I liked half of the performances because I feel like half of the cast were directed in a way that gets it. Mm. I I loved, I thought Leo was fantastic. Um, Mm. I thought that Joel Edgerton was wonderful. Yeah, he was really good. With his great Ian McShane style voice, which I loved. I thought it was a great choice. And his physicality and really loved that. And I thought Elizabeth Debicki was really good as Jordan Baker, even though she didn't get a lot to do. Mm. But I thought she was that character. Then on the flip side, I feel like Maguire just didn't, yeah, I, I just feel like he was misdirected or miscast yeah. or something. His narration doesn't work. And I think Kerry Mulligan, again, just vanishes into the background. I just, just Daisy is meant to pop, and she yeah. just does not pop. I, and, yeah. and you don't get the sense that she is as flighty and selfish as she is in the book. She plays it a bit more broken and a bit more wanting this love, and it's kind of like it's completely the wrong way to go with it. I think... I mean, we've long established I'm a bigger Mulligan fan than you are, yeah. but I, I think she plays it better than the film allows her. Mm. I, I, yeah, I think I think I, I think, think again, in it's, better it's, hands, it's what she's been asked to do. I yeah, think. but I did enjoy, like up to a point, I was kind of enjoying it, even though I knew it was. Uh, do you remember what did I say that about? Last year it was uh, Hitchcock. Yeah, it was like this is the most I've ever enjoyed something I actively hate, <laughs> and I wouldn't say it to that extent, but that's kind of how I felt about yeah. Star Trek Into Darkness. Yeah, but Star Trek is perfectly fine, but it's such a tick box blockbuster. It's just yeah. such a what does a blockbuster need? Explosions, tick. Um, family or connections or whatever, tick. References to the source, tick. Like it's just, it feels everything just feels so calculated and down to the motions um, that nothing ever rings true and nothing ever makes any sort of an impression. I mean, there's a nice kind of nine uh, eleven allegory it kind of goes for, but it even it just kind of glances at it. It glances at it at the start and glances at the end, and then nothing in between even relates to it. Yeah, yeah I, I, I don't know. I found it a bit soulless. I, I was enjoying the vast majority of it while I was watching it, mm. and I'm trying to hang on to that feeling because the more I think about it, the more annoyed I get. Yeah. And that's it's partly but not exclusively as a classic series fan mm. and the character dynamics and... 
I don't know why. Like, but, I, but it's so obviously fan baiting, like with the references that are in it, there, and then the all too clever switch they try towards the end, which is just like I'm a non trekkie and I was looking at that going, that's really. On I nose. actually, yeah, the 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 thing that is yelled out, I quite seriously physically flinched when that happened. <laughs> like in my seat, I went, I, it, that's how badly I reacted to that moment, and I don't know why you would want one of the greatest films of all time, yes, I said it, hanging over your head so much that you would keep referring to it when you're one film into a franchise that you're trying to establish as its own thing, even... It's perfectly enjoyable. I think the act... Like, as much as you've got the digital confetti going on, like, mm. there's too much CG and too many... Too much debris and explosions and... But I think the action scenes in this film are actually... Much of them are better directed than the action scenes in the first film. I thought the mm. first film... The first, uh, Abrams' first Star Trek really shuffered, uh, suffered from shaky cam-itis, whereas I think this film does a lot less. But the thing I loved the most about the first Star Trek was the casting. I thought the the, the, the cast were all really wonderful, but mm. I just I didn't get that as much with this film, and none of them were doing anything particularly wrong, but they just had so much less to do. Yeah, I just think that none of their roles were particularly expanded upon that first film. I thought the first one really captured the heart of who all these guys were, mm. whereas in the second film, like, Uhura's just kind of you know, looking askance at the man and Bones is just being irritable and Scotty's running around like a blue-ass fly and they're just really distilled. It's interesting just, like, that Uhura, they've tried to make her into more of a character, but they've done that by pairing her up with, with Spock mm. and now she's all about her man. That's like yep. her only thing. And in, in the original series, sure, they didn't delve into her character a lot, but I think she was stronger being somebody who was just competent at their job twenty four seven. Yeah, and not being an appendage, not being the girl, the scorned girlfriend. Yeah, so that 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 annoyed me a little. Yeah. But I'm sure they'll bring it back with uh, the search for Bruce Greenwood, <laughs> the search for Pike, the search for Carol Marcus's character. But we've had uh, another alumnus of Hellers for Hyphenates has uh, has got a film out. We've finally got Sinister. Wow. Written by, yeah, after how many months has it been? Uh, yeah, it's seven, Several. eight months, something, yeah. Written by uh, C. Robert Cargill, a.k.a. Massa Worm, who was our guest uh, midway through last year. And, uh, yeah, a, a horror film he co-wrote with uh, the director, Scott Derrickson, uh, Ethan Hawke and his family in a haunted house. I've got to say, I do like a film based around creepy Super 8 films. Yeah. Um, anyone that finds creepy Super 8 footage, um, you know, you've already kind of got me in your corner. Can uh, I jump in on that for a second? Except because for 8. See, 8 millimeters started well. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. It started well, and then it just progressively went to shit. I remember it having a creepy trailer. Yes, but exactly. Leaving that a, aside, yep. that thing about finding the film, it's interesting that I, I, I sort of got to, even though we're on different continents, so it's not like we were hanging out, but I sort of got to know Cargill online a bit because we were both writing for Ain't It Cool in mm. the mid-2000s. And that was when Drew McQueenie was also writing for them, a.k.a. Moriarty he was at the time. And he's also a screenwriter. And I find it really interesting that the two of them have both co-written films about the power of film, about like horrors, about mm. somebody finding an old film and it having this incredible, terrifying effect. Uh, and yeah, that was... Impr uh, almost imprinting upon the person that sees it. Yeah. yeah, and that, that was one he wrote with uh, Scott Swan, uh, Cigarette Burns, part of an anthology uh, directed by John Carpenter. But um, I, I find that really interesting that, you know, film critics writing about the power of old films. Mm. And I, 
kind of feel an obligation now. <laughs> there you go. That's, Carry the tradition. That's your uh, new horror film. Yeah, look, I find I found the first half of this film was really creepy. Set up character really well. I think Ethan Hawke's always good. I generally like him whenever I see him. The Super 8 films in this film are, are particularly unsettling, if somewhat elaborate, but mm. they are quite unsettling. It's in the second half when the supernatural element starts getting added into that I it just kind of lost me a little bit. I didn't mind the creature, it's the 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 the, 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 the big bad yeah, yeah. so much. I thought that was a good idea, but there's just there's a lot of scenes of how much can I say? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there, 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 yeah, there's a lot of scenes in the second half that just seemed a bit too on the nose, and in the end, it becomes a little bit like. It, it, a little too playful to the point where you're kind of like, why is that happening? Why mm. does it keep going boo right in front of the camera like that? Like it knows there's a camera film. there. I don't know. I, it just felt very artificial the second half okay. to me. But there's some really clever stuff in the second half as mm. well. I love the idea about moving houses. Okay, yeah, that's a, yeah, that's, that's a thing. really really great because I was idea. I was really enjoying. It. I was finding it really creepy, and then there is something very unexpected. Mm. that happens in the latter half and you're like, oh, well, is that the movie over then? Yeah. And it's such a clever idea and that was what really, really won me over. Mm. Um, that kicked it over the line for me. So, okay. yeah, I really, yeah. really enjoyed where, where it went. But, yeah, look, it's smartly written. It's got a lot of really great ideas. There's some cool, genuinely creepy stuff in it. It's definitely worth a look. Mm. I can only assume that you haven't seen Place Beyond the Pines because it's the kind of film that you would hate. Like, it's from the guys who made Blue Valentine. My favourite film of 2010. Sure. It feels like it's in the vein of Drive and Killing Them Softly. You hated those as well? Yeah, right? terrible films. Killing Them Softly was my favourite film of 2012. Right. Drive, top five of 2011. And I I really, I never get into films about fathers and sons. I, no, uh, you hate nor, those. Nor that. So I'm not surprised you've skipped this one. Yeah, no, you've, you've got it. You've got to go see I'm, it. It's I'm, so good. I'm seething over here. It's so, so good. It's And there have been some interesting... Uh, again, don't want to respond to the criticisms. Don't want it to be about that. But I've I've heard some criticism. I, I, I never want to tell somebody that they've missed the point. However, the people who have missed the point <laughs> of the structure and the way it's put together, it's so important and it's so essential what they've done with it and it's so brave and it is that father-son thing is really amped up mm. to such both an overt and a subtle degree it's really they play it on all levels you know uh, gosling is fantastic as always and it's the best work that bradley cooper's done better than silver linings yeah i really liked him in that but this yeah. is something else entirely wow yeah and uh spring breakers spring break you <laughs> which i'm gonna say i haven't seen yeah, that's well. That's the thing because that was actually one where I, before I went out, I said, "Yeah, this is going to be on my best or worst of the year." Fairly confident it was going to be on my worst, but yeah. I had to see what the fuss was about. It's probably gonna. It's almost a shoe in for my best. Okay. I was. Yeah, it kind almost of almost a shoe in. Well, well, I haven't seen all, all films of this year. <laughs> in I the lower, ha- but it's it, probably in the lower ranks of the. Well, best at the moment, the it's moment. quite high. Okay. At the moment, it's quite high, but you never know what the rest of the year holds. But it's. It's not what it looks like at all. It's not what it's, it's advertised as the superficial. Well, it seems to be a satire on what the American dream. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, and it's that thing of what we were talking before about Gatsby of the superficial, like the book, how it illuminated yeah. that this is exactly what this film is doing. Mm. And there's so and, and okay, stylistically, 
I reckon I've never seen a Harmony Korean film before, but I reckon Korean has taken a huge cue from Soderbergh. Well, he's never his films have never been stylish. Like they've always been fairly kind of lo-fi. I mean, that's the impression I got. Yeah, this uh, is like I, I've seen the trailers for this, and it looks like my God, he's using you know Cliff Martin different colored lighting and shit. Like he's just never he, he's just never been that sort of technical. Well, this is like post Limey Soderbergh, right? And it's got a Cliff Martinez score, yeah. and it's With it jumps Skrillex. around in time, and it, it's really, really insanely good. I want to end on the film The Hunt from Thomas Vinterberg, which um, I, I saw last year. Did Same. You, you saw the, it last year as well? the Melbourne International Film Festival. Yeah, that was one of my favourites of last year. Just a devastating, amazing film about a guy accused of pedophilia. So it's not a light film. No. The film is basically my nightmare. Mm. It's that whole thing about being accused of something you didn't do that's, you know, and it's the kind, and the kind of crime that... You know, once somebody points that finger at you, it sticks. Mm. And it's just like, you know what I mean? If somebody accuses you of murder, mm. you know, or theft or whatever, you get over it and, and people just kind of, you know, forget. But if, if somebody gets accused of, of pedophilia, it's that thing. It's just they never shake it. Yeah, yeah. And so... No one's ever quite convinced. Exactly. Like, yeah. yeah. And well, it's such a great moral dilemma film. And But one thing I really liked about the film is it's a great look at... Danish masculinity. There's this real kind of sense, like these bunch of guys, they all go out in this freezing cold and drink and they have these huge male bonding sessions and even the way they kind of deal with the whole incident, like some uh, they're they're their uh, responses to punch the living suitcase out of him. Other Mm. people respond in, in, they go inside. I found that as interesting as the main plot. I think in the end it kind of, I don't know, there's something about it that didn't quite hang together for me. I don't know whether it all seemed a bit kind of pat in the end, but yeah, I liked it a lot. I thought it was very, very good. Well, but, um, I think, well, that ending is actually what really sold it for me. Right. I mean, I was already, I was already totally into it, but that ending just really hit me hard. Yeah. And, but yeah, the film is, you know, the psychology of mob mentality in a way we haven't seen since James Whale's Frankenstein. Mm, okay. And I, I basically just saying that because I like talking about James Wales Frankenstein. <laughs> just an excuse to mention it because it's been three years and I haven't done it yet. But there we go. <laughs> Happy birthday. So it was recently announced by uh, Disney uh, post their acquisition of Lucasfilm that there would be a new Star Wars-related movie being made every year from 2015 onwards. The first film will, of course, be J.J. Abrams' Star Wars Episode Seven, and then from there we'd start um, these yearly films set in the Star Wars universe. So we thought we'd have a little bit of fun here and explore what we do uh, with with the franchise and for that we've gone to the man who Disney and Lucasfilm should come to for <laughs> their new Star Wars product and that is our very very special guest Mr. Brian Trenchard Smith exploitation legend himself Thank you very much. Uh, very pleased to be here. Thank you for joining us Brian. We, we have to know like what if, if Disney came to you and said make a Star Wars film, it doesn't have to be part of the overarching narrative, overarching narrative, what would you come back to them with? Well, I, th- I would want to make Star Wars films about the underclass, uh, the people who are, you know, sort of glimpsed in subsidiary 
characters, roles, or just you know, plain crowd scenes. I, I would make an entire Star Wars about um, one of Warwick Davis's characters. Um, <laughs> yeah, a man on the short end of life uh, who's struggling, uh, vertically challenged in a, a universe where you know people really don't mind where they put their feet. Um, you know, mm. particularly if they're 30 feet tall and, or you know, in need of a Weight Watchers program like Jabba the Hutt. I, I think to explore the social dynamics of the universe that George Lucas created initially would be interesting through you know, the eyes of people who normally don't have movies written about them. That's um, really great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, uh, and, and, of course, you know, the lead characters could you know, peripherally enter the, uh, the, this smaller universe, um, a universe of creatures who are you know, dealing with unregulated capitalism, you know, trying to make their, you know, feed their families or you know, uh, run their bordello or, <laughs> or their fancy, fancy restaurant that serves galactic, galactic delicacies uh, such as human hamburgers or things like that. I, I think that would be interesting. It would, my Star Wars universe would probably be a little on the wacky, deranged side, but uh, um, I think there'd be an audience for it. Perhaps it could be a Webisode uh, <laughs> Star series, um, uh, all, all shot on a green screen stage. But no, I think uh, that there are many characters I'd like to know more about. I believe George Lucas, when he was asked about the the tavern scene in Star Wars, uh, why were all those creatures in there? I think he said, well, you know, uh, ugly guys hang out in bars. Um, <laughs> and, or at least that was what was that's a, that what I was told he was uh, quoted as saying, but who knows, hearsay. I just remember the, the, the original Star Wars with such awe. Mm. Um, it, it, it had you know, enormous impact, obviously, across the world. It just touched a nerve. Uh, you know, it was you know, heroic fantasy where you know, the good guys win and, and then they get a sort of full dress parade and get a medal at the end. <laughs> and and I, I actually remember that yeah, in that you know, final you know, parade is their sort of the march of honor they do with the wonderful John Williams music. It, it, it brought tears to my eyes. I, I, I honestly, I, I had tears of joy trickling down my cheeks because I had been so caught up in the, in the grand themes as well as the, you know, spectacle and humor, etc. But it totally worked as a piece of storytelling. And there was such a great feeling of satisfaction uh, when that sort of uh, victory parade took place. And uh, it was a, you know, uh, a great experience. Mm. And it was extraordinary to learn from John Steers, one of the Academy Award winning uh, special effects technicians who you know, shared with four others the Academy Award, um, uh, how much George Lucas hated the whole experience of directing. And uh, he got over it, I suppose. But uh, it was not a pleasant experience for him. And, uh, and that's what John Steers told me when he came to work uh, on Turkey Shoot to blow up my prison camp. <laughs> well, it took George 22 years to uh, get over that. Because he essentially retired from directing for, for two decades until he came back with the prequels. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and the prequels are joyless. Yeah, yeah completely. Sadly. It's... It's funny you mention the cantina because 
I, w- I was thinking about what I, w- what I would do with this franchise if I was to make a standalone film. And I went back to the fact that uh, A New Hope is really based on Kurosawa's Hidden Fortress. And I really like that idea. And I think that's something that the films sort of lost. Uh, and I- I've been told the Clone Wars uh, TV series, which I've never seen, has taken from like Seven Samurai and Stray Dog, of all things, and really sort of goes back to that original idea. But I was thinking, going beyond Japanese cinema, what I would do with it is I would do Casablanca in the cantina on Tatooine and have the stormtroopers as the Nazis. And, uh, and just, yeah, I, I, I just thought that, that, that could be a fun way to do it. And uh, ho- hopefully we'll avoid the line, these aren't the usual suspects you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that would be good. But, you know, I, w- I would also feature a stormtrooper, you know, a reluctant stormtrooper like you know, Woody Allen and uh, <laughs> you know, the reluctant sperm and everything you, you yeah. ever wanted about you know, uh, sex and never dared ask. A stormtrooper who grows a conscience, uh, that would be an interesting one. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, uh, it's, you know, there, there, there's a, a whole a wealth of, of, of opportunities there. But I think the Casablanca idea is, uh, is, is really cool. Uh, So any other suggestions? Yeah, Yeah. Paul, Paul, what did you come up with? Well, this is the thing. I mean, at at first, I had to work really hard to get to this because at first I'm thinking, hmm, do we go the the Terence Malick style uh, (laughs) humanity's rumination on uh, humanity's relationship with the Force on Tatooine? Um, Or or do we, you know... (laughs) (laughs) What is that noise? I'm getting some snoring through this. I, oh, think, right, I, think, I think there's a disturbance <laughs> in the force. A snoozer. Oh, <laughs> no, this is uh, my actual idea, though. There's one of two. One uh, would be, seeing the, the series is so uh, inspired by samurai and, and, and um, kind of uh, uh, gangster sort of tales and westerns, and working on my favourite character in the franchise, who is, of course, Han Solo. My idea is to, to have uh, elderly Han Solo, now uh, divorced from Leia, married to an alien, um, living a nice kind of retired life, and he's tracked down by Greedo's daughter, who's been searching for him her whole life to get revenge for him shooting her father. And it's this whole kind of rumination, or, or, this, or I guess this whole kind of thing on, you know, the, the wages of the lives that, that they've lived and the war that's torn apart the galaxy and the fallout from that. I thought that would be a kind of a really kind of like an elegic, you know, it'd, it'd play like a John Ford Western or a Kurosawa samurai film. That's really good. Yeah, and I you think... could actually have them uh, arguing over who shot first, quite seriously. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, yeah, the searches in space uh, yeah. certainly is, is a way to go. There are many archetypal movies that you can graft into that universe. Mm. So Disney, yeah. call us. Yes, yes. <laughs> So, Brian, please tell us, whom have you picked for your... Hell is for Hyphenates Filmmaker of the Month. Well, it can only be the, the one and only Quentin Tarantino. Uh, Woo! <laughs> Paul's quite happy about This is a very happy day for me, Brian. Uh, we've been doing this for three years. It's our third anniversary podcast, and we keep wondering when people are going to get to our favourite filmmakers. Lee discussed uh, Steven Soderbergh uh, with Alice Tynan last year, and now on our third anniversary, you have chosen mine. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, I'm, I'm always happy to oblige. <laughs> it's, it's interesting, though, because all of our guests pick 
filmmakers that they admire. And this is obviously true this time as well, but I think this is the first time where somebody has picked a filmmaker who admires them. Because Tarantino has, uh, has said so many nice things about you and your films. Yes, and that's very gracious of him. And I remember our first meeting, which was at a premiere after-party um, when he was dating Mira Sorvino and she'd just played Marilyn Monroe in a HBO um, miniseries. And, you know, I, I was introduced to him and I said, you don't, you don't know me. And he said, yes, I do. You made Turkey. Um, oh, what about that scene where they beat that girl to death on the parade ground? Oh, that was great, man. What were you thinking? <laughs> and uh, uh, then he started to recite the, the, the turkey's creed, you know, I am a turkey, the lowest form of animal life on earth. <laughs> he knew the whole speech by heart. I was just knocked out. And uh, so, you know, he was very gracious and, uh, you know, a fellow enthusiast for cinema. And we see one another from time to time. You know, I'm not in the inner circle and uh, wouldn't expect to be. But uh, there was a picture of us taken together at the BAFTA Awards where he won, you know, an award for Most Outstanding Director and much deservedly so. And he said, I I'm delighted to get this award from the Brits because it's the Brits who first recognized me. Uh, the mm. Brits were the first to champion Reservoir Dogs. I mean, the film obviously sold initially yeah, quite well at Cannes when it was debuted, but it was, after all, a million-dollar movie, and it had interesting, quirky, you know, indie-type names in it. But, you know, its its fate at the box office was not necessarily assured. Um, the Brits mounted a tremendous campaign, uh, and the film just got up and, and galloped away, and, uh, and as it did in many other countries as well. So he was particularly gratified and said so in his speech that, uh, uh, that 20 years later, he gets this award from the Brits, and uh, yeah, it really meant something to him, uh, as indeed his Oscar for the screenplay of Django Unchained. He, he was a huge, huge influence on, on my generation. I was growing up around the time that uh, Reservoir Dogs was gaining traction because it took a lot longer for films to gain traction back in the 90s than they do now. You know, everything's quite instant. But Reservoir Dogs was gaining traction just as Pulp Fiction came out. And to be a teenager at that time and to have those films there, I mean, he he was a huge influence on, on, on me and my friends. And I actually do remember watching Reservoir Dogs for the very first time on the day of the Port Arthur Massacre and, and what an effect that had on me uh, and just seeing... The enormous gulf between Tarantino's stylized fiction, fictional violence, and this real-life massacre, and seeing just how separate they were—that had a huge impact on me. For you know, due to real-life events, I think. Wow. Yeah. Well, of course, in the culture wars that are going on now in America, those on you know, uh, on the repressive side of politics, particularly in the the gun you know, debate, um, they blame gun violence on movies, you know, that, uh, you know, graphically, you know, and stylistically depict violence on the screen. Mm. And they say, well, uh, that's, that's what gets these mentally ill people unhinged, uh, Im imitating, you know, what they see on the screen. Well, I think we all imitate some aspects of what we see on the screen uh, anyway. I mean, uh, that, that's, the, that's the power of the moving image. Yeah. Uh, but we don't, yeah, we, we're not drawn to, to murder. The deranged mind will, will do what it wishes. You can't blame movies or video games for that. His stylized violence, I think, is 
uh, is extraordinary. And you, you look at the difference between the way he depicted it in Inglorious Bastards mm -hmm. uh, and Django. Uh, in Bastards, it was very fast cut, bang, you know, just blisteringly fast and not dwelt upon. And, and high impact. Uh, he, he's a man who can change his style as uh, the genre requires. It's very interesting because if you look at those early films, particularly Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown, aren't in and of themselves particularly violent. It's just that when violence is used, it's used sparingly and powerfully and often gets you completely, you know, off guard. Those moments are so effective that people just think, oh, these are just ultra-violent movies, they're so disturbing. But but compared to the bloodbaths of Kill Bill and Django Unchained, those, those films well, are really quite tame. It's worth pointing out that Jackie Brown, you almost don't see any violence on it. All, all, all the violence is off-screen, which mm. is really interesting for him to do sort of after those films. But uh, I think the the violence in Tarantino's films, which is what he was, I guess, initially known for in pop culture, because he's since created the... Uh, we seem to have the Tarantino-verse and the idea that all of his films are connected. And when you look at Inglorious Bastards, in which World War II was one when Hitler was killed in that movie theatre and history was changed, there's that interesting suggestion that a world was created slightly different to our own in which violence is more prevalent and, uh, and more acceptable. And I found that really interesting, that all of his previous films were sort of informed by this World War II movie that he made. It's also uh, the, the fact that Hitler was killed in a movie theatre and that uh, film had such a power in that incident mm. that also in the Tarantino-verse that movies have this exalted place in pop culture as well, which informs all the other films as to why all the characters are so pop culture referential. Yes, um, I, exactly. I mean, that you, that you have to step into the Tarantino-verse to really appreciate what he has to offer. Those you know, griping internet trolls that uh, bitch about him being derivative, uh, they don't get it. They, they don't understand the many layers he is, you know, uh, he is applying to the standard tropes of a given genre. And that's why his films bear inspection repeatedly. Uh, so. could, could I play devil's advocate here? And, and Because that is a common... Uh, criticism of of Tarantino is that he lifts uh, plots and large swathes of dialogue and music from other films, and and a lot of his critics take that as a, a sign of unoriginality. Did uh, they so say that about Shakespeare as well? Yeah, I mean, they, they did actually. It's, it's plots, plotters from you know all, all great previous writers, uh, and he thought, oh, it's a good plot. Now let let me rework that in uh, uh, in Venice. Let me rework that in Denmark, etc. So, I mean, there are only a few basic, you know, stories, uh, and they you know, get retold in a variety of, of of forms. So, I don't see him as someone who pillages uh, other people's work. He actually reveres other people's work, and then you know puts you know his own icing on it. I've I've always had this theory about about Quentin and his work, and I think that he processes movies at a much more fundamental way than a lot of us. I think I think he's kind of like the, uh, sort of a a proto film geek. Whereas I, I think whereas some people evoke like uh, if they're making something from the screen and they're evoking a sunset or a moment, it's usually something that recalls something in their own lives that means something to them, and they're expressing it on the screen. I think Quentin. I think that happens with him with movies. I think films and lines and characters 
represent to him. I think they remind him of times in his life. And I think that he recalls those things on screen as things that mean something at that level to him. Whereas other people just see them as kind of these callous, oh, wouldn't that be cool, let's do that. But I think these these moments and these characters, these things he recalls, I think they mean something very deep to Quentin at a, at a, at a cellular level. Yeah, I mean, his, I think growing up, you know, moving a great deal in California, he, his happiest times were at the movie house. And, you know, he was happy in a, an Italian, you know, police picture. He was happy in um, a Lucio Fulci zombie movie. He was mm. happy, in a, you know, in a classic Western. Uh, and he, he entered the, the, the universe of cinema where anything is possible. Uh, and generally, the good guys win, though if they don't, there's some considerable satisfaction uh, thematically for uh, the audience in the fact that they don't, and maybe some social justice point being made. The universe of the cinema is, you know, a, a, a place I have spent a great deal of time in, and uh, I'm I'm very happy there. Mm. I do recall my mother saying to me when I was, you know, about 13, 14, well, you can't live in the cinema. And I said, <laughs> why not? <laughs> and, is my been my great and 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 she and, and my father did encourage me in my career um yeah he was an air force officer i've been very fortunate to have lived in the cinema for the last 40 years uh 50 60 i don't know god i'm 104 actually so, <laughs> uh, uh, and um, and i think quentin is the same you know quentin you know, never stops finding new discoveries from the past uh, and enjoying them and revisiting, you know, his favorite films. Yeah, I was there when he hosted a sort of post-David Carradine festival after you know, poor David had died. And he had in his private collection a whole host of television episodes um, in which David Carradine had played a part when he was a jobbing actor in those days um, back in the 60s. And he, we, yeah, the Cine family on Fairfax is where it took place, and it's like a, uh, like a sort of private, it, it, it's sort of a cinema club. And uh, he put up a whole program of, of extracts of, uh, of David Carradine's work, which, of which he had memory from those earliest days. So uh, he, you know, he has an incredible encyclopedic memory for film and for the qualities uh, of of film and performances that he remembers. He absolutely. I mean, he know he seems to know more about Australian film than I don't think it's an exaggeration to say ninety nine percent of Australians. I think that might be <laughs> even underselling it. He's got such an encyclopedic knowledge of it and such a passion for it. And it occurred to me last night that he's almost like a film critic who, instead of you know, writing reviews or making podcasts, he expresses his love for cinema through film. I don't know if that if that theory stands up, but uh, I think it well, does. It it absolutely does. He has written volumes though that he plans to publish after he retires from filmmaking. Yes, yeah. yeah yes. He, I keep saying, "Don't retire, please, Quentin. Don't retire." Oh no, I'm, I can't go on doing this. This is so hard. I can't go on doing this forever. I'm I'm going to come a point in time when I'm just going to hang up my viewfinder, not that he actually really uses one because he, <laughs> uh, he's very good with the fingers and the, and the eyeball. Um, <laughs> he says, no, I'm going to write novels because his scripts, if you read them, mm -hmm. you know, he kind of writes them 
like novels. He, he wants to set the scene for the reader uh, in, in, let's say, a, a more extensively detailed way than the average screenplay is written. And so sometimes he can have a 300 or 400 page script. doesn't mean it's going to run four hours. He's just He's letting the reader really understand the, the milieu, the, the environment that, in which the characters are going to interact. And so he puts in a lot of, of detail like that. And that, that's, you know, he's going to write some fantastic novels uh, when he does retire, but I hope that's not too soon. You've got to talk him out of it. You've Agreed. got to talk him out of it, Brian. Well, I don't know. A, a lot of people probably don't realize how he's not just an, an auteur who sees only his own vision and nothing else. He is collaborative. You know, I have had a, 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 you know, an example when he asked me and four, direct, four directors to come to his house and look at the Cannes Film Festival print of Inglorious Bastards. Um, <laughs> and before he made the final cut for the U.S. release, and he was being encouraged by the Weinsteins at that stage to cut it back. It's too long. It's too long. Mm. You know, it's brilliant, but it's too long. Everyone at Cannes said it's too long. <laughs> um, yeah, take 15 minutes out of it. Uh, it was two hours and, you know, 30 at the, thereabouts uh, at the time. Um, he invited, you know, he calls us the Grindhouse Gang. Because, uh, <laughs> We were invited to uh, to Grindhouse as well, and you know, had dinner with him and chatted after seeing it. And Richard Rush, who made the Stuntman and various other films of that era, you know, Louis Teague, who made you know the the, the Lady in Red, Alligator, and Alan Arkush, and uh, you know, myself. We were invited, and we looked at the film in his in his private theatre, and. Then he said, okay, now I want to ask you a question. There is a scene that, I, that is not in the film, and I want to, I'm going to tell you about it, and do you think I should put it back in for the American release? And then he told us about it, and we all unanimously said, yes, you, I think that would really help. That's a piece of connective tissue that would really help. And, you know, sometimes in filmmaking and in editing, you can't always see the wood for the trees and, uh, you, you know, it, it's valuable to get an objective opinion. And, and we all said, put it back, put it back. And the scene was Brad Pitt is looking down from the window at the entrance to the underground you know, bar mm. and saying, you know, I don't want to like going into a place with only one exit. And... You know, they talk a little bit about, you know, what's going to happen and the risks thereof. And then we cut to uh, the scene under, uh, in, in that bar where, you know, fun and games takes place. Without that scene, uh, we don't know who the guy in the German uniform really is. You see, in the Winston Churchill scene, there is a British officer in British uniform, uh, very pucker, uh, played by Michael Fassbender. And then if you cut straight to the underground you know, bar, then there is this man in a German uniform speaking entirely in German. Mm. And it, you don't really grasp who he is or the connection with the fact that he's part of the mission. With the scene looking down from the window at the entrance to the, uh, the bar, you, you uh, identify him as, oh, he was the British officer, now he's in German uniform because he's part of the team. Okay, I get it. And therefore, there's much more tension in that scene in the bar when 
you know, the games take place and he's, he's sort of bluffing his way through. Quinton just needed re- sort of reinforcement to, the, to his basic instinct. I mean, he wrote the scene for a reason. He was encouraged to drop it, but then he was encouraged to put it back in again by people who were seeing the, the film you know, for the first time and in, enjoying it and seeing what tracked and what didn't track. Well, it's tempting to think that Quentin was delivered into the movie world fully formed with Reservoir Dogs, but that's not entirely true because there was one attempt he had at making a film before Reservoir Dogs. I mean, it's still amazing and mind-blowing that Reservoir Dogs is the second thing he ever made. The first was a a low-budget 16mm film he made with his friends in the mid-'80s called My Best Friend's Birthday. Now, unfortunately, because of a fire, half the film was lost. So we only have the remaining 36 minutes. And it's a really interesting insight into a screen personality that's forming. Quentin is in it. It's about a guy who is, uh, rents a hooker for his best friend on his birthday. And from that alone, you know that a lot of this turns up in true romance, um, including he's, his character name is Clarence, and all these themes sort of come through. But there's so much stuff in it, like even down to the foot fetish, even down to putting a kung fu scene in the middle of there. Like, he's, his personality is already getting out there. And it's, it's a really interesting... I mean, it, the fact that it's half a film, it kind of, you know, there's obviously huge gaps and, and plot points missing. But the jo- a lot of the jokes work, and it's really interesting to see this personality forming. Yeah, no, it, it is indeed. I mean, we all have to form some way. And, God, if you look at some of my very early 16-millimeter work, like The Stuntman and um, Kung Fu Killers and uh, uh, things like that, yeah, you might get a vestige of my personality somewhere. Then <laughs> <laughs> uh, from there, there was a long period of writing scripts, and he wrote three scripts almost back-to-back, the scripts for Reservoir Dogs, True Romance, or True Romance first, and then Reservoir Dogs and, uh, and Natural Born Killers. And his aim was he would make one and sell the other two. And it just sort of depended which would be the first one to sell. And uh, he he was always going to make Reservoir Dogs as a gritty 16mm ultra-low-budget thing in much the same fashion as My Best Friend's Birthday. But then the script managed to find its way to Harvey Keitel and things suddenly changed. And watching the, the, the film now, it's uh, Reservoir Dogs, is that the, you're seeing a lot of things that we take for granted today, but really weren't being done at the time in terms of use of music, certain uh, character uh, flips and changes and non-linear storytelling. And That was groundbreaking in its day, the, 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 the non-linear structure. Exactly. And it's just, it's so bracing. And I have to say too, that like you, you guys were talking about your initial Quentin Tarantino experiences. I actually saw Reservoir Dogs on its first day in Australian cinemas. <laughs> I don't know how this happened. Uh, I just heard about it from, funnily enough, Brian, the UK, uh, from Empire Magazine, and it just sounded like something I needed to see. And I think it was me and about three others in the Kino in the city, and you felt like something was happening. Like, I was, you know, at the time I was 17, I wasn't cognizant of what it was, but there was something just so familiar yet so different about this film from anything else I'd seen to that point. And... The thing about Quentin that that a lot of people forget and his critics like to gloss over is the fact that first and foremost, as well as as a genius filmmaker, he's a film evangelist. He is somebody who wants to communicate 
his love of these obscure genres and these obscure films and that film is more than just the Hollywood stuff we know. And placing the references in these films and then being totally upfront about where these references come from and, hey, you should go out and see this stuff. Quentin really opened the floodgates for this kind of culture and I think that's something that, that, that yeah, he doesn't get enough credit for because he really is a film, uh, a, a film evangelist. Yeah. Could I come back to something you said earlier, which I thought was really interesting? You mentioned that uh, he writes his films like books, and that's that jumped out at me because re-watching his films as many times as I've seen them, watching them all in quick succession recently uh, to refresh my memory, I noticed how much all of his films, particularly from Pulp Fiction onwards, are uh, divided into chapters. He likes sequences and, uh, like, distinct scenes. Yeah, Save 30, 40 years ago, you have a genre film, a Western, a war movie, and you'd expect in the, the three-act structure there would be at least three significant set pieces that reflected what the, the audience expects from the genre, be it a car chase, a battle scene. Name your genre and, 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 and think of the classic set pieces. I think what Quentin's doing is saying, let's multiply the number of set pieces. Let's, let's make every chapter a set piece of its own kind. It doesn't necessarily have to be an action set piece or even a suspense set piece, but you take every scene and you can define what's going on in that scene probably in one sentence. And then, then he exploits the character conflict in that scene in a way that makes the scene stand out and not something where your attention drops slightly because you're waiting for the next big thing to happen. I think Tarantino of the 90s and Tarantino of the 2000s are very different. I think there's there's a real shift there. The thing that's uh, that struck me about re-watching Reservoir Dogs and Jackie Brown again and also Pulp Fiction is it's it reminded of his skill with actors and, and directing actors and allowing them to have these moments Jackie Brown, I became really fascinated with watching what the other actor in the scene was doing when when the other person was speaking. Michael Keaton perching himself on a chair in one of the interrogations with Jackie and De Niro kind of take, trying to take everything in but really not keeping up. And Jackie Brown in particular almost plays like a theatre piece at times. And then the, he seemed to really become inspired by Sergio Leone going into the 2000s because from the 2000s on we've got this sort of very operatic, revenge-obsessed kind of uh, way he's decided to go. Kill Bill in particular is almost like the Disneyland of Grindhouse. You know, you're going through all these different worlds. Like we go through Spaghetti Western world and then we go to Southern Revenge world and and so forth. And I just, I, I just love it for that. And it's interesting because they're two distinctive styles within the same man's oeuvre and so both completely him. Well, yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, we all evolve. You know, we, we, we don't just keep doing the same thing all, all over again. And uh, as, we, as, as we have more life experience, we evolve in our style of, of filmmaking or the kind of things that we want to say subtextually, perhaps, uh, within the film. I mean, revenge is a, you know, a, a universal concept of, uh, of cinema. Revenge movies are particularly popular in... Uh, yeah, international markets outside of the U.S. and they're obviously quite popular in the U.S. too. But traditionally, you, know, you look at a, a great deal of Italian, well, a great deal of Chinese cinema. This is true, and yeah, and I I, I do agree with that um, that divide of his '90s work and his 2000s work because I I think what I like about them is 
is actually quite different. The things I respond to in his in his nineties films are different to the things I respond to in his two thousands. And I kind of like that he's he is going into that more uh, operatic angle where he's making these enormous films. I mean, the scope of something like Inglorious is extraordinary. Well, the scope was even greater, of course, when he first wrote it. Mm. I mean, it, yeah, but probably several, you know, it was several hundred pages longer. And it seemed to incorporate every aspect of World War Two. And he, <laughs> he, he, you know, it was like you threw the longest day, the Battle of the Bulge, the Bridget Ray Morgan, to name but three, into the mix. And they were just set pieces along the way. And he realized that, well, that's not feasible. So he put it aside for a couple of years. And, and then after Kill Bill, uh, he um, decided to sort of uh, work on it some more. And within a year, out popped this great screenplay, which really focused on one element from his original script. It, it's worth mentioning also his unrealized projects because uh, he's always teasing films. I mean, there was the Inglorious Bastards uh, film, which would have been, he briefly talked about being set, uh, I guess, you know, before most of the events of Inglorious Bastards. There were, uh, there's Kill Bill Volume 3, which he occasionally discusses, which I think his idea for that is brilliant and should make it. And there was also the Vega Brothers, in which Vic Vega from Reservoir Dogs and Vincent Vega from Pulp Fiction, who were brothers, or in one other iteration of it, their, indivi- their twins, were in this film together. And he keeps teasing out other films, uh, incorporating characters from his previous films, so they never seem to eventuate. Yeah, I mean, I guess the most important decision a filmmaker can, uh, certainly one a filmmaker of stature can make, is, you know, one, let's say, who is not a, a jobbing filmmaker like myself. What is the next personal film that I want to make? What is the next story I want to tell? Mm. Django Unchained is, you know, not just a desire to honor you know, spaghetti westerns in general and Sergio Corbucci in particular, about whom he's writing a book. He saw the opportunity through a fantasy revisionist past uh, of American history to deal with the the issue of slavery, of racial prejudice. Mm. I live in the States, so I'm very conscious of the unspoken but real racial prejudice uh, directed towards Barack Obama by you know, sections of the Middle West and Deep South communities. This, this is such a hot potato that no one wanted to touch it. No, no filmmaker wanted to touch it. You know, they, they'd done their obligatory miniseries many years ago, Roots, mm-hmm. which was you know, fairly uncompromising. And, you know, there was the exploitation version of, uh, of, of slavery, Mandingo and Drum. And there were a few other little ones. But basically in the last 20 years, that's a hot potato. You... You know, no one wants to know about it, really. Neither the blacks nor the whites really are going to come to the movies in sufficient numbers to recoup the cost to see white people abusing black people. But he knew how to make it compelling to both audiences. Uh, And uh, that's how he sculpted uh, Django Unchained. And I believe, as I've said in my commentary, that uh, it's a very important social document Sure, it's revisionist fantasy cinema that um, has a lot of derivations from genres that are not considered, you know, respectable enough to be called artistic by highfalutin critics. But it took a lot of balls to put his reputation on the line 
to make what in effect is, is, is a social justice piece that nonetheless is a, is a cartoon at the same time. I, I, I talk to you know, I, young people, despite my advanced age, uh, a lot. I relate to them um, because they are the hope for the future. The number of people I talk to who said, we, we had no idea it was that bad. Mm. And don't let anyone tell you it wasn't that bad because, you know, the, the historical documents, if you dig into it, will show you just how bad it was. If I thought that I could admire Quentin more after Inglorious Bastards, his filmmaking and his, you know, his balls, mm. uh, then uh, <laughs> his ballsiness went up several notches when he made Django Unchained, which was a risk, a $70 million risk, that could basically have you know, turned his, if, if it hadn't worked, could have really you know, uh, stalled his ability to have the creative freedom he needs. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, it was, I think it's a brilliant film. And it reminded me that there's so much, he's so good at the surface level stuff, at the dialogue and the cool shots and the music coming in at the right, uh, at the right moment, all of that artifice is so good that you forget how much is going on under the surface. I mean, re-watching Kill Bill, I didn't realize how much subtext about family and domestic violence. I mean, there's so much going on in there. And I love the way he sneaks that in under what are ostensibly cool revenge films. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that, that's, you have to sugar the pill. Uh, you know, I think it was a, you know, Samuel Goldwyn who said, uh, you uh, you want to send a message? Call Western Union. Uh, <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, you know, Quentin does seed these, you know, little pointers, nudge, nudge, you know, come on, think about this issue mm. uh, into his films. And uh, I, I do not know what he's going to do next, uh, but he is doing, he's thinking about it. He's just, he's he was obviously going to decompress after the, the worldwide publicity tour and uh, start thinking about what's next. Yeah, I hope he can give us a film every. Well, it seems to take three years, really, because he's got to. It's got to germinate. He's got to write it, and then he's got to set it up and get the right cast, and he's got to make it and then get it out, and uh, that's really a three-year process, and that is pretty wearing. My kind of films, you get closure quicker. So, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I, I'd love to have a ninety-day uh, a schedule. That would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, thank you so much for joining us for our, our third anniversary show and for, for talking about the great Quentin Tarantino with us. It has been a pleasure. And uh, I, you know, you guys are great cinema enthusiasts, very knowledgeable. And, uh, you know, you, you love your medium. And uh, I hope you can get wider exposure. I think, you know, exposure to cinema and cinema history is good for people. The more we can celebrate cinema, his, uh, both both contemporary and uh, and hi uh, cinema history uh, uh, the better and that's why I, I do contribute to to trailers from hell uh, because that's uh, as that circle of uh, subscribers grows the young generation are finding out about really great films that were made in the 40s 50s 70s wherever uh, and yeah, maybe be inspired to make their own great films one day, as as Quentin and yeah, or yeah, Spielberg and they, they were all influenced by the films they saw as kids. We we tend to kind of want to keep, we want to make those films that took us by storm when we were teenagers, just as you have expressed. You know, you're you you were knocked out by by Quentin's first work, and 
uh, it stayed with you, you know, ever since. Absolutely. Thank you again, and we'll see the rest of you next month. That's the way it crumbles, cookie-wise.